Hello, and welcome to episode nine of OTTB on Tap. I'm Neve, and I'm Emily. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Emily Daniel Salvaggio from Slow and Steady Stables about from racetrack to show ring using exercise rider smarts when restarting OTTBs. We've known Emily for over 10 years and her online presence is pretty prolific, but could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Emily Daniel Salvaggio. You really can just call me Emily because nobody can pronounce any part of my name. <laughs> 18 letters and a hyphen is my big joke on the world because uh-huh. <laughs> I am 52 years old now, be 53 this summer, but I always turn my new year like the thoroughbreds. I always start thinking in January, <laughs> okay, I'm 53 now. <laughs> so I have been playing around with horses since I was a kid and I have a decade-long experiences on the racetrack with thoroughbreds. So I always rode thoroughbreds before, and it kind of kept going. And I live in Pennsylvania with my husband, John, and our four dogs. And two miles down the road live our four horses. And I work nearby in the veterinary medicine world. And as a admin, my official title is scheduling coordinator, but I do a lot more. And that's me. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And we wanted to start with your background at the track. So can you just kind of talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about how you got into working at the track? How old were you? And kind of how did you get into your first track job? Well, the track kind of has a first little dabble and then, okay, we got serious. So the first little dabble was in 1989, in the spring of 89, I bought an off-the-track thoroughbred from a Hall of Fame steeplechase trainer, Mikey Smithick. And Mikey liked me and said, hey, come riding with us. So I got to ride out with him a few times and was introduced with much fear, aghast horror, to (laughs) fox hunting with Elkridge Harford in an exercise saddle on a thoroughbred that I barely knew when I was... 89. I would have been 16, 17. Um, and Sounds perfect. <laughs> I, by no means used to, you know, fresh thoroughbreds, but Mikey had a different system and he was a steeplechase rider. So his horses had to be fit for a long time. But so that was the first little inkling. What actually took place to get it to take hold. And there are a number of us in the world that have this story is that I trained with eventing trainer Jimmy Wofford and he saw in me, and I'm going to describe this for everybody. So it's not as bad as it sounds, but he saw in (laughs) Uh me that one, I could be fitter Two, I was resorting to my hands before my leg in my seat when I was trying to slow down or regulate pace. And, you know, it was one of those things that, He comes from a long background that his book has detailed wonderfully. And you have to be, if you're going to go to the heights of competition like Emily went to, you need to have a better sense of being able to regulate the pace without your hands. So I was living in Middleburg and he said, one, you're too fat. You need to learn to gallop. (laughs) And two, 
you need to stop using your hands as much. And I said, okay. So I meandered on over across town and a friend of mine who she and I used to go to events together was already galloping for a trainer, Diana McClure, who's now Diana Cooney. And I started there. Her barn was across the street from Middleburg Training Center. I got a little bit of a leg up kind of learning what to do and then moved over to Barbara Graham, who had a barn at the training center and probably was one of the more prolific trainers at the training center. She has had the O'Connors have galloped with her, you know, kind of a who's who of eventing has come through her barn. So it made sense because Wofford and everybody else was leading that path. That's amazing because I have certainly read in Jimmy's book and always thought it would be a great idea to actually go gallop racehorses. And somehow that transition never happened. And I love the way that you describe about using your hands before you're seeing legs to regulate pace. I think that's something that's so important to learn. And I don't think I learned it until I was going advanced. And once I learned it, I was like, oh, I don't need to use a super strong bit. My horse can actually go in a snaffle and I don't get my arms pulled out. So yeah, that's really interesting. I think we'll talk a little bit more later too about some of those different crossovers from galloping to other horse sports. Or many. (laughs) (laughs) So ask me about lateral work and how that backfired in the practice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will want to hear about that for sure. (laughs) So can anybody do what you did? Just go and, and get a job galloping or like, do you need an in like a Jimmy to kind of get you in or what would be your advice for somebody that wants to go and do this nowadays? Okay. So nowadays the story has changed a little, but ultimately with many asterisks on my statement, yes, you can, but here's where the asterisks kick in. If you're trying to do it, in the part of the world that has a top tier track, you're probably going to start lower down the rung of the track hierarchy. If you are closer to an area like Ocala or Aiken, where there are training centers and not active races, you know, regularly, you know, bet on simulcast, all that, you have a better shot of being able to start and actually sit on a horse. What I did is very much advanced along by the fact that I was in the right part of the world to do it. Yeah. If you're sitting in the middle of Alaska, (laughs) you might have a little bit of a challenge. I'm not saying it's impossible, but to get up and do it sometimes requires getting up and moving. And I don't mean like across town. I mean like moving. I think that... It's important to remember in the broad scale of riding that we have more urban sprawl. We have less riding in the great outdoors. We have less kids that have pony club and fox hunting as an option when they start. So by nature of how the world of equestrianism in the U.S. has advanced to 2024, we're losing a little bit. But the folks that are determined can still get it done. Is it as easy to follow the path I did when I did it? No. But I've seen kids now that, you know, they'll knock your socks off with how bad they want it. Yeah. And they'll they'll trade off everything. And their parents are trying, like, 
crazy to keep them in six different after school activities mm-hmm. and they're willing to get up at three in the morning right. just to be able to sit on a horse. So where there's a will, there's a way. Just a quick question, I think kind of fits into this subject, but back when you were exercise riding, it's obviously always been a predominantly male driven environment. Did you find that to be a tricky part of getting on the track, getting horses to ride? Or did you have somebody that kind of took you under their wing and sort of protect you from a little bit of that atmosphere? I think that when I look at the barns I rode at, there was a bit of luck in that how I got to each barn was a little bit of a fluid connection with someone that had rank. Yeah. And it wasn't that it's easier to say that it got me in the door, but my ability to listen, ride and do whatever, let me stay. Right. You still have to prove yourself. It wasn't that, yeah. It, it wasn't that I was taken for face value of, Oh, there's this really good rider coming here. You know, we yeah. just got to give her a job and she'll be fabulous. No, it <laughs> yeah. was, you know, it's a girl that I know through, XYZ, let's see what she does. Well, and you felt like somebody had vouched for you, so you want to hold up your end of the agreement in that situation too. I'm sure as a teenager, you were kind of like, they represented me, so I'm going to show up and try to do a good job. Actually, as a teenager, no, I was a very <laughs> bad teenager. I am a much better plus 30 year old. I mean, that's where life kicked in for me. Under 30 was a lot of really lucky moments and <laughs> I did not put in the work ethic that I should have. And somewhere after 30, it clicked in. And I think I worked harder because I could see what I missed. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then how about, I know you mentioned a couple of barns that you worked at or trainers that you worked for. Were there any other notable trainers or horses that you worked with in your time working on the track? Yes, I actually printed up a whole stack of their exercise pages. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I worked with a lot of nice horses, but I should clarify that there's only a couple that I was their regular rider. I think something that people might want to know is that there is a whole process with thoroughbreds. That, And this is true of many other breeds too, but let's just stay focused on thoroughbreds here. There are farms that breed them. There are farms that also fold them out as well as breeding them. There are farms that take on just babies for breaking. And there are farms that have breaking and galloping on the farm as a private place. There are training tracks with trainers that are teaching horses to become racehorses. And then there are tracks that are training centers or actual facilities that hold races. And there is a diverse path for how a thoroughbred goes from being born to being backed to being at a track. Well, learning how to be at a track and then being at a track. I've been very, I would point out that the breeding side of things was literally only a couple months long and that is a part I would say I am not experienced in. Even those couple months don't add up to me having enough knowledge to say I'm experienced. I did do some time breaking thoroughbreds, and that was eye-opening in its own way. And then 
training babies to gallop and then riding babies and riding made horses at the track and then up to galloping at premier tracks. So yeah, there's a a whole bunch there and how it all starts versus how it all finishes. And even with like sidesteps in the middle for layup or changing trainers or changing surfaces for the horse's preference or, you know, all the things there's a lot of diversity that your average show rider probably doesn't know, but that's not a dig as also a show rider. I just know that I don't know every step of, you know, breeding in utero for a dressage horse, warm blood in Europe and how it gets to Grand Prix at the Olympics. There's many, many, many steps. And even as a lifetime horseman, I don't know them all. Yeah, that is fair enough. Are there any horses that you could pull out of that that you have in your equity? I'm sorry, I sidetracked. I did that. <laughs> That's that okay. was me. <laughs> That's all good. Okay. Sorry. And uh, uh, and also, if cool. you want to email me the, the information that you have, I'll put it in the show notes for anybody that's interested. Oh, yeah. That would be awesome. Sure. Okay. So the first Gallup job actually had one of the best horses I've ever sat on in my life who earned a lot of money. This is a mare named Maxine. She is by Cozine and then out for a bit. And was coming, making her way back to galloping at the track. We were at Middleburg Training Center with Barbara Graham. Her regular trainer is Tommy Skiffington. And I laugh about this. I used to tell Junie, he was the foreman for Barbara. Really, really nice, funny, long-time African-American horseman. I love him to death. Junie Marlowe. His real name is Horace Marlowe. He would make fun of me. I was new and I was young. And I said, I'm telling you, this mare is the real thing. And he's like, you don't know anything. You have only been doing this for months. You don't know anything. And he just would make fun of me. (laughs) He would make fun of me so hard. I got two funny stories about her. First off, she's by Cozine. Her mother was an Irish mare, landed on the ground in Ireland, was Sired by Sexton Blake. I I know I've looked this up, but I don't remember the influence behind Sexton. And she was, I mean, crazy good. Like, crazy, crazy good. We had to gallop her first set in the dark. That was the only way to survive. (laughs) And she had to go out by herself. And you had to make sure there was, if possible, don't have another horse on the track. Wow. And this is a seven-eighths of a mile track. So, Would she just be that competitive? Yes. She also was very athletic because Cozine. And she was the realest amount of speed I felt. She still ranks up in the top three. Wow. She was very real. And in the dark, going at a very real pace is maybe <laughs> slightly unnerving when you're new to this whole game. And there are no lights. I mean, it's it's like something that you it see is. in thoroughbred movies, was, where it's just like that moment. I was going to say the scene in Sea Biscuit where they yeah. gallop him in the dark, and you just yep. see the poles is dead on. Wow. Now, when you throw in a deer on the training track in Middleburg, <laughs> oh let me tell you, it does not turn out in a lovely Sea Biscuit, beautiful cinematic way. You hit the dirt, <laughs> oh, and the very nice graded stakes winning mare goes loose. I feel like you have an affinity maybe for Cozine bread. She 
was the impetus. Because she was part of his first crop or second crop, it led to the absolute 100% devotion to any of his kids, which then, of course, as Emily knows, will lead into something we're going to talk about later. But the funniest thing about Maxine, I remember one day it was either really cold or really wet, and we were jogging in the shed row. Backing up for people who don't know what that means. Prepare to be horrified. We actually ride horses inside the barn. (laughs) But there's a nice dirt sand ring around the bank of stalls. And usually the ceiling's not too high. It's Santa Anita. My helmet would hit the pipe outside as you're posting. That's fun, I'm sure. And it's really fun when the horse decides to act up. I feel like you can just grab the rafters and just pull yourself off. Except for the fact that that was for Richard Mandela and those horses were worth a lot of money. It was my job to keep them on the (laughs) ground. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Then they're loose. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So Maxine, one day we were just jogging in the shed row and I was prelim level of enter at that point. And just, you know, my hands are quiet. My legs are strong, just going around the shed row trotting. And I got yelled at by Barbara's sister because he's, she's like, stop making her do that dressage stuff. I said, I'm not. <laughs> my hands are in the right place. My legs are in the right place. And I'm asking her to go forward. And she was perfectly on the bit for 20 minutes. <laughs> Funny how and that works, was, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what Jimmy said would work. <laughs> Why wouldn't it work? Exactly. Live and in person. No, uh, Maxine was great. And she went on. She was an Eclipse finalist, I think. She won $1.175 million in her career. Wow. And that was in 23 starts. And she won or placed in more than 10 graded stakes. And she was a turf filly. Wow. Cool. That is so cool that you got to so play She was everything I said. That. She was the real deal. And at that point in her career, when I sat on her, she had only done maiden specials and I think allowance. So she hadn't hit the stakes part yet. And I kept saying, nope, nope, real, real, real deal. I think the other big name horse that people know with me because of my posting on the Chronicle forums at the time was very lucky to, when I moved back to the East Coast, I came back to Maryland and at some point got fed up with an office job that was horrible and said, that's it. I'm going back to the track. So I commuted an hour each way and in every morning and wow. started working for Eddie Gaudet first, got going. And then he said, my friend Robbie has this job opening. Why don't you go ride for him? And Robbie is Robbie Bales. And he is a great guy. His family, whole family is great. And he had come up on the backside under his father, uh, Mert Bales. Uh, and he was a claiming trainer. He wasn't known for having stakes horses, wasn't known for having anything that, that had put its name in light, so to speak. And I went to ride for him and I was riding for him. And then they went down to a sale in Ocala in the spring, right? Not long after I had started riding for him. And came back from the sale. Oh, we bought three horses. Great. Wonderful. And they all went to a training farm because they were two-year-olds and they had to be broken, what have you. And then they came to Bowie. We were at the training center, Bowie Training Center, which has been closed. There's now discussion in Maryland of reopening it. Thankfully, it hasn't been bulldozed. We're all excited. 
if it happens, it'll be great. It was a great track. So this horse showed up one day, and I'm not kidding you, Black Stallion Incarnate, although he was a gelding, which was a good thing. So I got to ride him, and his name was Scrappy T. And he was named by his owner after his grandson, whose name was, I believe, Tucker. Or if I get that wrong, I'm going to hear about it. But so he named him after his grandson, who has a name that starts with a T. And he was really scrappy and funny. So I got to gallop him for months. And I was telling people at Bowie Training Center, outside of Laurel, outside of Pimlico running, I was telling them by fall, you watch, watch this horse. By triple ground season next year, he is something. And they're looking at me going, girl, look where you are. What the hell are you thinking? You work for a claiming trainer. That horse is by no one. Didn't cost that much. And he hasn't run yet. What are you talking about? And I was like, just trust me. Just trust me. I believe it. And he went out. The video, anybody who wants to go find it, although I think it's harder to find online now, but Scrappy's first race, he finished, I think it was second or third. But the funniest thing was his first race was a Delaware. If you watch the video, he is out the back door. Like he, the whole beginning of the race, out the back door, out the back door, out the back door, gets into the stretch and hits afterburners. And he just couldn't catch the horse that was in front of him. And we were all like, oh my God. So yeah. Then you knew what he had in there. He he figured out how to win quickly. And then it was like this whole process of being in the right place at the right time. Robbie and the string decided to take a short string. That short string means just a couple of horses to New York to do the New York prep races for the Triple Crown because we thought we had something. And they were right. But when they went up there, the assistant trainer and his girlfriend that were going to manage the couple horses and gallop them couldn't get licensed in New York because in New York you cannot have had certain levels of crimes and be licensed. Oh boy. And this guy had had a DUI. Oh, okay. And so then they called me up and were like, can you go to Belmont? And I was like, what day? They're like, no, no. Can you go to Belmont? And I went, wait, what? <laughs> so, my dog and I, because Belmont allows dogs on the backside, said goodbye to my boyfriend at the time and moved up onto the track, lived in a dorm on the backside, and became New Yorkers and galloped at Belmont Park. And that led to the campaign we had where we won the Withers. We were third or second in the world away. And prepped, decided we didn't quite have a derby course, so we skipped the derby. And one, all the names start with W's. I don't know where. Uh, <laughs> we won another stake and then had three weeks to the Preakness. So we were better off than the Derby horses because we had an extra week of rest. And anybody who's watched the 2005 Preakness with the Fleet Alex winning knows that there was a little bit of a kerfuffle at the head of the stretch. But Scrappy T hasn't always been, will always be the horse of my lifetime for racehorses. That's really what do you cool. mean by kerfuffle? This oh, I've seen the videos. <laughs> this is I, I think our listeners might need a, a visual okay, so, okay. So interpretation. To interpret what happened. Were the officials called in at some point? <laughs> Were the officials called in? Scrappy 
had a bad habit. You couldn't let him get to the front of the field in the race. You're very far from the finish line because he was the type of horse that wanted competition all the time. So he would do what we call in racing. He would hang. He wouldn't keep accelerating and move. Like anybody who's seen Barbaro's stretch run in the Derby, that horse has never hung a day in his life. <laughs> that horse knew exactly how good he was. Scrappy was the type that wanted competition to fight all the way throughout. So what happened was that he got to the head of the stretch and was in the lead and started to hang because he got daylight in front of him and nobody coming. Problem is that in the Preakness, second jewel of the Triple Crown, you're unlikely to keep that position unless you're a super horse. And sure enough, a fleet Alex was coming up from the back. Jeremy Rose had done the most wonderful job placing him in exactly the right part on the track for that race. And when he came up, our jockey, Ramon Dominguez, very good friend of mine, saw him coming and he used a left-handed whip. And what happens when you put your lateral aids on a horse from one side, they go and move to the other side. And racehorses are still horses. And riders who know how to use lateral aids sometimes use them to help supple a racehorse so that their body is soft and nice and adjustable. And so you maybe were you doing the dressage. Right. <laughs> when you have an epic viral triple crown moment that won't stop ever being replayed every year when the <laughs> races come on, we're still the best prickness out there. But um, so long story short, he swerved from the left-handed whip to the right he crossed right into the path of where Fleet Alex was going. But they made contact, and it wasn't this horrible nightmare of a scene. Alex tripped, went to his knees for a sec, bounced back up, and just kept accelerating away. Fleet Alex wins the race. We finish second, but we're only five lengths behind Alex, and we're still six lengths ahead of Giacomo, the Derby winner. So even in second place, it wasn't the catastrophe that it could have been. But it was really hard because that's when the internet was starting to get people with opinions. And there were a lot of opinions from the general public that, you know, one, betting and and winners purse-wise, he should have been disallowed. And then there was the more extreme positions that he should be dead. So that was a little rough. But yeah. the horse was great. Well, extreme. Everybody was great. Yeah. Well, and I feel like there's a lot of money involved in the Triple Crown, and, and people yeah. lose sense of um, reality a little bit there. <laughs> um, well, and it's funny because we were 12 to 1, so everybody who bet on us profited, like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we kind of already touched on a couple of things that we were going to ask you, but um, you don't need to name names. Um, oh, no, but- I can name names. I can name names. <laughs> What's the worst horse you've ever galloped and why? Okay, so we have to put this in perspective. Worst is with a very big grain of salt because one of the things about the job with Robbie was that we jogged horses a lot and galloped horses infrequently compared to other barns. Michael Matz, when I worked for him, we galloped every day, every day, every day, every day. And there was only certain days that we just jogged. At Robbie's barn, because you're a claiming trainer and sometimes you don't know what's 
under the legs on the x-rays of a horse. So you're doing your best to keep them together, keep them happy, keep them fit enough. And most horses are claimed in the middle of being claimed, being ridden and run. Yeah. You know, every three weeks, every two weeks. So they're fit. They don't need to gallop, 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 gallop. And if you trot them for two weeks and then run them again, they're bursting at the seams and more likely to run. So the horse I'm going to mention right off, he was not the worst to gallop. He was the worst for me because I didn't yet know how to gallop him effectively. And I had to ask for an outrider to help me pull up a few times. As in like, (laughs) I couldn't pull up. And Neve and Emily hey, I, know I, 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 I had small. that problem. <laughs> yeah. And you learn, yeah. you learn, it's, you it's learn, good, but, yeah. but it's funny. Even a couple of times I've scraped down the outside rail for more than a mile going, are you going to goddamn listen to me or not? That yeah. was Christmas away who was by skip away, who was the most wonderful gelding in the world. I love him to pieces. The worst was, I would take ownership of my role in this because I could have been a more fit rider if I had been able to gallop him with the level of gallop fitness that I had when I worked for Michael Matz. I think it would have been a different story. But at the level of gallop fitness I had in a claiming barn when we weren't galloping everything every day, I was a sitting duck. (laughs) So, yeah, he was tough. And who was the other one? I wrote this down. They were both gray horses. That should tell you something. We have a running theory that gray horses, one of the reasons that they get a little silly is that they have that hair in the center of their forelock and that one hair goes inside their head and starts swirling around and growing and long, 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 and eventually it eats up their whole brain. So <laughs> that, all that gray, is my, all, all the gray lovers out of the, out there are going to be very disappointed. Well, no, because my one of my best horses was a gray. So the other bad story is true. There was a horse in our barn. This one shall remain nameless, but he was great. And he had a problem. He would bolt, not straight, to the side. What people may not know about Belmont Park, there are actually five tracks at Belmont Park. So there are two indoor tracks that one was Jerkins' barn, Alan Jerkins. And the other was Zito's barn. And they had indoor tracks where you could actually sustain a canter inside on a track around their stall banks, which always made it fun for the horses in the stalls. Um, Then we have the training track at Belmont that is a mile. And then you have Big Sandy, which is the mile and a half prolific track that normally hosts the Belmont. On this day... This event happened on the quarter mile track. We have a tiny little track in the back of Belmont that's good for babies, good for horses that just need a little bit of leg stretch, but not much. And a quarter mile on a racehorse is good because you can contain them to like a bullring effect. <laughs> and thankfully they have an outrider. So <laughs> they they might know that there's some fun there. So on that day we were trying an extension blinker on the horse. Now, for those who don't know what this is, you have regular blinkers on a horse and a cup that helps focus their vision. But an extension blinker is an extra long piece of plastic so that they actually cannot see 
on the side that's a problem. Now, this is great for racing when you're 8, 10 horses deep. It's a good thing. Can be helpful. But when you're a single horse on the track, it's the first time playing with the horse, understanding what the extension blinker does. You know, we've got it on him. We've jogged around. We've led him. We've tried to show him where his vision is. Then we pick up a canner and we're just cantering around the little quarter mile track. And he grabs hold of the bit and decides to zing to the outside rail at <laughs> a gallop and doesn't know that there is an outside rail. Oh, oh no. So the middle part of my right leg between my ankle and my knee got crushed into oh, man. the aluminum outside rail. Now, the best part is I didn't fall off. <laughs> I pulled up down in the middle of the bend, and that's where the trainers tended to like sit and watch their horses. And sure enough, there's two trainers there, and I am staring at them, but it's winter at Belmont. So I'm wearing 7,000 layers, including <laughs> polar fleece neck gaiter and goggles and my helmet. So they cannot see the look on my face that I am in epic amounts of pain, oh. cannot breathe, am just trying to hold back between screaming and crying and hold the horse together. Right. And they come out of their cars and look at me are like, you okay? And I was just like, oh. <laughs> oh boy so they had to come over like three of them my trainer came over too and they held the horse carefully and like i had to slide, slide off. off the horse into people's arms and they called oh. it oh my so, god so yeah that awful. is that is a not great outcome when you are <laughs> i mean it was barely 400 meters a minute for the eventers in the group it was not <laughs> fast but if you crank your leg into aluminum at that speed, it's not good. Oh. Yeah. Especially with a horse that blindly is running away from whatever it thinks it's running from, you know? Oh, and he just, he turned his head, grabbed the bit sideways and went, Voop! and it was right. so fast. It, there was, I couldn't. You had nothing. Nothing. Well, that kind of leads us into our next question, which is to sum up what's normal behavior at the track and what's abnormal or considered bad. What's going to get you kind of in trouble behavior wise at the track? I feel like at the track, you're going to see stuff that you see with horses all over the place, right? They could be a little bit nappy. They could be a little herd bound. They could be, you know, you've already mentioned bolting and running sideways and things like that. But is that normal or would that still be kind of an abnormal behaviors no. <laughs> right i would say i would say it's more abnormal but i would also say that one of the things that every track has is a nice range of abilities of its riders there is always this sounds like a bad novel here but there's always the guy that can ride anything or girl that can yeah, ride right. anything Like you can let them up onto a loose sow from the nearby bacon farm and they will go around and make it look like it should have run against Barbara. We've all seen those videos of like the guy, like the exercise rider that like literally like hops up on something, loses his stirrup or his saddle and just gallops around the track and then finally brings the horse up. And it it looks like it was planned. I lost my saddle. Okay. Well, (laughs) oh, well. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is where each track is different, but they all have the commonality that you have broad, broad range of rider ability. There's always going to be the riders that don't know much. 
Yeah. They're writers that are learning, which is different than don't know much. And amazing to see the cross section because what is a tough horse for me to gallop is not a tough horse for my friend Miguel, who gallops as an outrider at Belmont, who galloped Bernardini, who was the toughest horse I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like that horse galloped in draw reins because galloping without draw reins was you are working at grade one speed or I'm losing this rider in the first five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason he's uh, sought after as a sport horse. <laughs> yes, but I mean, Miguel didn't. And Miguel can ride anything. I mean, anything. My dog. He could ride my dog. And my <laughs> but he's not taking Bernardini but, out on the track without draw reins. Right, exactly. But but he could have. No, he, yeah. he did a couple of breezes for it. He could. But I mean, but you have the highest level and then you have so many levels below that what's difficult for me isn't difficult for him, but it would be impossible for the girl at the bottom of the chain yeah, or the guy at the bottom of the chain. So behaving badly, what we see, the horses that are roughest are the ones that cause a stir at the gap. The gap is where you come on and off the track. And it's usually at like the five eighths pole, the finish line, the quarter mile pole. These are where common places are, but each traffic track is different. You know, we had huge spread clusters when Fusaishi Pegasus came on the track at Hollywood. He was a jerk. <laughs> yeah, and I'm using nice stories about him. <laughs> yeah. He would clear the track. That horse came out on one leg and would just be legs in all directions. And his rider was brilliant. You know, they don't become household names without having good people along the way. Yeah. And I've seen, because I galloped out west, I've seen Baffert horses that you could put your mother on tomorrow because they're so quiet. And that's because their whole system works well and they have beautifully soft riders. They don't hire bad riders. They care and understand that it starts here and goes down. And if you put the wrong person here, everything else can go out of order. Sure. You know, so... I think that the bad ones that we get in our heads are the ones that have a lot of energy that rear the buck that act out. But the thing about the track is it's a great equalizer when you gallop, because no matter what horse you're sitting on, at some point their fitness will pull down and they relax in the gallop and you get them to stop each day. There's not a track out there where the horse is still running. (laughs) They've all gone back. Right. (laughs) Now, having said that, I did see a friend of mine, (laughs) Get run off with a horse that did eight laps of a wow. seven-eighths mile track. Oh, boy. It was also a gray. I want to point that out. I'm sure they were <laughs> exhausted by the time the horse pulled up. She was just getting fit again, and I couldn't have felt more bad for her. I was on another horse. I was trying to figure out a way to stop it, catch it, gallop with it, cut off yeah. forever rain. There's nothing. nothing. Oh, man. But so it, the bad is a relative thing. Yeah, but sure. Difficult. I understand. Bad actor, is it because of the horse or is it because of the rider? You know, I think you start a lot of that can be said for horses after the track. Yeah, this is true everywhere. Yeah. You had made a great point, though. Oh, isn't it funny that riding the horse forward <laughs> suddenly shakes out some of the nonsense? Yeah. Let yeah. go. Let it run. They can't run all day. The transition of racetrack versus home. 
how are horses at the track handled and run differently than at home or like at a boarding barn? Like what are some really important things for listeners to know that when they're bringing their very first or really any OTTB home, what are those kind of different ways and things that they should expect? Well, the thing that people need to know is that there is a value in a lot of young animals, humans included, to consistency. And the racetrack is nothing if not consistent. What happens every day, and it can vary slightly barn to barn, is that the grooms show up early and the hot walkers show up early. And the hot walkers take the horse out of the stall, usually with a chain over its nose. And people should, I want to side note here, you're dealing with valuable animals that haven't had turnout that are made as fit as they can be. I have worked on the track for more than a decade, handled thousands of horses. You have to understand that in this system, there's an owner involved, there's a trainer involved, and there's investors, there's people riding on the tails of it that are own the stallion of the horse. Maybe it's doing really well that they're trying to use it as promotional for their stallion. There's a lot of people behind each racehorse. They have to keep it safe. They need to keep it safe from itself. They need to keep it safe from other horses. And they need to keep it safe in the building because they understand the amount of energy it has. A chain shank over a nose is not something that is an automatic abuse moment. It is a control moment, mostly for the benefit of the horse. You brought it up. It's it's good because it it comes up, you know, online, on Facebook a lot. All the time. A lot of the horses that I've met off the track tend to find the chain as a pacifier. They'll in a a cotton rope, they're like, What do I do? What you know, you put the chain over the nose with a loose rein and they're just like, Okay. So I keep my four feet on the ground, what's the big deal? Right. (laughs) You know. It's what they're used to, it's what works. Right. So they get taken out of the stall, the hot walker walks them, the groom mucks the stall. They get tied up to the wall. This is something that is normal in most barns. And we, as show riders who are not indoctrinated to a racetrack life, might be alarmed by it because, oh, my God, tying up a horse for three hours. Well, this is a very good patience thing. And a lot of trainers that break horses have patience poles or patience trees. And you get the horse to just understand to stop, settle, and maintain itself. Now, yeah, Emily, not every is, horse can is do this- it. In a stall, or is this in a stall? Okay, there's yeah, a stride on the back wall around it, in the and stall. it can move its body around, which I think they really enjoy it being able to swing their yep. hindquarters around. And yep. they can paw. I can tell you that <laughs> <laughs> they can go back and forth, but just like the horse that's not going to run across five states, at some point they stop. Yeah. Do they all stop? No. Do most of them stop? Yes. So you wait till it's their turn to go to the track. They get tacked up by their groom. Ideally, their exercise rider checks the tack. This is what Michael Matz pounded into us, which thankfully I already knew. But the only person responsible for you and the security of your saddle and bridle is you. This crosses all disciplines, folks. If anybody tacks up your horse, check it. No offense. If Michael Matz tacked up my horse, I would still check it. (laughs) That's my So you go and you ride. And before you ride, they pull them out of the stall and walk a few turns in the shed row around the barn aisle to get them loose and moving. Then you leg the rider up. They go walk to the track. They jog. They gallop. They come back from a gallop. They walk. 
They walk back to the barn. They get taken back by their groom, untacked. They walk some more. They get a bath, full bath with soap. They get a cooler put on, and the hot walker walks them until they're dry or they're cool. Then they go back in the stall. So welcome to 23 hours in a stall. Mm-hmm. This is something that is normal. Now, there are a lot of great situations like Fairhill Training Center where there's turnout. There's round pens at Belmont Park. You can put a horse out in a round pen for a few hours. But the level of energy that you're taking a horse off the track and coming home with is something that's second to none. Yeah. You have to factor this in, and I'm rounding my way back here to what it's <laughs> yeah, like okay. to bring them home. Great job. <laughs> you are dealing with a very fit animal that needs to find its balance. So if you bring to it the normalcy that it knows in a repetitious cycle of every day we do this, every day we do that, you know, it doesn't have to be a hot walker, a shank, mucking its stall, but incorporating, you know, I walk it by hand before I try and get on. Mm-hmm. That if I'm on and I have a free person, I have them walk me holding on to my yeah. rein or putting a shank on the bridle and just walking because this is something they know. And if I can bring what they know to my world and save the big, Hey, we're going to jump five things. It's nice. And me personally, I try and replicate what they know in my training the first three months as much as I can. Very cool. How do you like to incorporate things like turnout, meeting new pasture mates, maybe even changing their feed, like, you know, more like horse management things. Do you find that to be challenging or do you just stick to the new routine and the horse kind of adapts to it? I tend to do what I can to make it easier on them. It will be probably lightly, what's the word I'm looking for? Horrific for some people, but I do give them ace for turnout Mm -hmm. and put them out by themselves in a smaller field for for less time than my rest of my horses. I make sure they have a buddy nearby. I have the world's most lovely quarter horse horse and Max goes out with everybody and puts up with everything. And he's only 15 hands. So they get to go out with Max pretty quickly. And we just go away from the first little bit of time is with a little bit of ACE or something to just help Mm -hmm. them. I mean, it, it helps them as much as me to not have a broken leg horse in the field. Absolutely. Don't want him to run. Don't want him to worry. That's the biggest thing. And if he's not understanding to graze, because they haven't had turnout in a while, but if they don't know how to graze at all, or if they can't think about grazing, then we'll pull back on the turnout. We'll go out with a chain shank on nice grass and just teach him how to pick grass in the field and then put him in the barn. And you just move up progressively. I, my personal system this is part of the reason I named my barn slow and steady is that I really do believe if you choose every day to set up the horse for success, you accelerate the process of being successful. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't ask my horse to do something that I haven't clearly explained. Yeah. I'm not walking them into the stall and expecting them to know to turn around and get a treat. I turn them around and give them a treat. So that after the repetition of every day doing this, they walk in the stall and are half turned around before I've even <laughs> crossed the threshold. And I don't get kicked that way. Right, right. Change depends on the horse. It really yeah. does depend on the horse. My horses are all on things that are very less 
high fat caloric versus what a racehorse is on. But I did even the most recent thoroughbred who is huge. We bought the high fat feed and combined it with what the rest of the horses are on and just made sure that the fat content was where it needed to be. And the amount of hay we stuffed into that boy is what uh, me personally, and not to get in the feed discussion with everybody else, I am the biggest proponent of less green and more hay. Yeah. yeah. Lots and lots We're of on that hay <laughs> further. I know. It's a little <laughs> bit like we had a barn together. <laughs> I definitely think, though, that is becoming increasingly a trend more and more yes. and more. You hear that. And I think that's great that people are learning, okay, less of the rocket fuel, more of the boring food. Well, and I think the feed companies have also restructured <coughs> the grain mm-hmm. better. It's not all sweet feed anymore. Yeah, Even right. the high fat stuff isn't sweet feed. It's extruded and easier yeah. to digest and has a higher fat content. And again, a horror moment for some people. My horses don't get supplements. They get grain, yeah. they get grass, and they get hay. If they need supplements, it's usually a joint thing. And I've elected to go with joint injections or muscle injections because then I know that the intended drug is one, researched and scientifically proven. Two, got where it was going on purpose. And three, I'm not wasting money that needs to get where it's going. If I need to use it, I want to get there. And there's a world in which you can say, listen, if you're going to supplement your horse with something that when it doesn't need it and its body doesn't need it, it just passes through them. Then if you want to do that for yourself, that's fine. If it's not hurting the horse and you want to do it, and it makes you feel good at night, then that's okay. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely not a one size fits all situation. I was just going to kind of wrap up this part of the discussion with maybe some humor. I don't know, but can you recount <laughs> a time that maybe things didn't go exactly planned with a new OTDB for you when you first brought it home and introduced it to new um, things? I mean, I think my most current OTTB is probably the blue star winner of this category <laughs> because I brought him home, a very nice horse, and I had followed him on the track because I, okay, bad habit number 70,402 is that I read echo base entries all the time. I look for what I like, I look for what's out there and I keep a track of that because the breeding is in all the entries and you know, you can get a membership to twin spires and it's free and watch all the races being a former track person. I know how to watch the saddling enclosure, the warm up before they get to the gate and how they jog back after they've run their race. And I can find my horses that way. I found my good horse that way. And this horse that I have now, Lad, my second horse named Lad, this will get confusing for anybody listening. Um, mm-hmm. This Lad is called English <laughs> Lad. English Lad is sired by Golden Lad. Um, so I found him and, you know, this is where things get a little funny because I had been tracking him mentioned to a friend of mine who does aftercare through his track that I was following a cool horse. And she's like, Oh, I know that horse. Another friend of mine works on the track. Oh, I know that horse. Really cool. Laid back guy. Really nice. And I told my friend that does the, does the aftercare, you know, if he ever comes available, let me know. And he did. And so I went out and looked at him and there was a lot I liked. And there was a couple things that my gut didn't like. And I ignored my gut. And that was a mistake 
because there are things that your gut is telling you that you should maybe listen to. Yeah. And it wasn't anything horrific. It was just his build was a little funny. His feet were a little funny. And I very much wanted a horse that didn't have certain problems that some of my other horses had had. So I was trying very hard to steer clear of XYZ problem. And I did. But I landed with A through W, all the problems. Ouch. He has a great temperament. He's very cute. Long story short, is probably unrideable for the rest of his life. Oh, wow. Oh, no. I'm so sorry probably, to hear that. I mean, he would need so much money and workups just mm-hmm. to figure out what exactly is the main predominant thing. He has one problem that is exacerbated by another problem that the two make rehab for the one problem nearly impossible and it's just this is horses though he's safe sound he's in my barn was i lied to about him in pieces yes i found out but you know he's lovely he's happy he's healthy and when i knew i had a problem was that in the first five rides i came off twice with my oh wow and we've only had five rides. I stopped at that point and started yeah. digging deeper and realized that there's more problems than I realized. So no. he is my favorite failure is what we'll call him because so. he's just very cute, very nice. He wants to play and who knows? I might take this moment to play with some of the disciplines that are not riding disciplines. There's now a whole world of like horse agility on a shank. So yeah. <laughs> why wouldn't you teach your 17 hand, six year old thoroughbred that still wants to play and rear and kick out to do things on the ground? I mean, why not? Yeah, so sure. he'll, he'll probably go see a cross country course this year to step over rails on the ground just to do something. And yeah. I was thankful that the brain worked well enough to talk to my immediate panel of friends, discuss, 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 and went straight to vets. You know, yeah. we thankfully have crossed into an era where we don't need to go to cowboys as much because horses, yeah. I think we're understanding better when something's wrong. It's usually a pain effect, not a, Oh, oh, my owner was such a cruel woman. She gave the other horses <laughs> carrots. She didn't give me any carrots. I'm going to show right. her. That doesn't work. Yeah, it may work right, in Disney right. horses. does not work in real horses. Right, so I would say right. that lad, second lad is the biggest failure, although first lad was probably tied for the biggest success. So the lads are yeah. on the bookends. I think I just want to touch on what you said yeah. there about your last horse real quick is a, I, I think we've talked in our previous episodes about like acceptance of risk and level of risk. And, you know, I think yeah. all of us that buy horses straight off the track at, as much due diligence as you even did. And sometimes yeah. things just don't end up how they're supposed to. So no. I'm sorry that happened to you, but thankful that yeah, but you found out I, before somebody got hurt. Yeah. And <laughs> that's the other thing too, is that he'll stay with me. We yeah. know now <clears throat> that as beautiful as he is, he would be a risk. Yes. Not, of course. not to necessarily hurt a person, but to get passed around and put in a bad situation. And yep. I've been directly involved with helping get horses out of the kill pen, but that I had some transient affiliation with, Yeah, you know, that one chestnut M that you and I saw that mm-hmm. ended up in a kill pen a year later. I quickly yep. fundraised and got him out of there, but it teaches you 
even without, oh, that was my horse, that you just don't ever want to be there. Yeah, so absolutely. So he'll stay safe and yeah. we'll keep him happy and he'll be good. Cool. But right, if well, at 50 someone years old, that's my first failure, I'm fine. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> so speaking of highlights, we want to f- focus now on what were some of your big moments with your off-the-track thoroughbreds? Maybe tell us about your favorite one that you had why they were your favorite, mm-hmm. and some of your riding and showing highlights from your yeah, career with them. for non-track experiences. <laughs> with Okay. For non-track people, this is not supposed to work out, but Emily competed in the first RRP makeover, which was at Pimlico. And that was the onset of the big idea. I actually went to compete in the first open to the public couple hundred horse deep makeover. And I went looking specifically for a horse to take to the makeover. And the thing is that none of this should happen. Um, I want to qualify this because this (laughs) doesn't happen ever. I went, like I said before, looking through Equibase and saw that there was a gelding by Cousine running at Charlestown in West Virginia. Charlestown is known as being a very low-level track. It is not the best of the best. There are great horsemen at every track in America, so I'm not going to disparage the entire population, but there's some less than wonderful people there too. So the horse was, as I'm looking at Equibase entries, obviously he's entered in a race soon. So I went and watched his race online, and the thing I saw right off was that he just had this big, huge, what I called a Rolex trot. Like, you could just imagine him coming down the center line at Rolex. And for those who don't know what I'm talking about, it's now called the Land Rover three-day event. (laughs) But those of us who are older remember it as Rolex. It will always be Rolex, period. (laughs) So... (laughs) I'm watching Uh-oh. him. Before very controversial event. here. <laughs> I know. I know but if a Land Rover car could be better than a mechanic special, I might call it Land Rover. But they can't. So <laughs> Rolex watches hold up and take a licking. Anyway, I digress. I go, I watch this race. He goes in the gate and he runs terribly. But he jogs back. And you can see on the video of him jogging back to his handlers. And there's that huge sweeping length and trot. And I was like, holy crap. Now, this is where being a former backside person helps. Because I know that Charlestown's racing office is open during races. I also know they give out trainers' phone numbers. I had my phone calling Charlestown's racing office probably around the time they were taking his saddle off. I got his (laughs) trainer's number in about a minute and a half. And I tried to make myself wait, but realistically it was probably only 11 minutes. And I called him up and said, how would you like to get that big gray hay burner out of your barn? And he's like, well, what do you give me? And I told him, and he's like, no more. I was like, if you want more, I'm going to make you do more. There'll be more vet work involved. There'll be x-rays involved. And you're going to have to hold it for three hours. (laughs) And he said, Okay, less. I said, good. I need to come down and see him first. He's like, okay. So I went down to the track. And this is where I think 
was the biggest moment with him. The horse's name is Ginjoint, and he is lovely. One of the things was I met the trainer at the track on the weekend. So this being a less prosperous track, they had less help. I offered to walk the horses while they mucked because I know the routine. I can help. I don't have to just sit there and stare at you working and just not understand. <laughs> so I walked Jin around the shed row and... <laughs> This is where I had this moment of epiphany that I've had a better life than some because <laughs> all the barns I ever worked at, the shed row was flat dirt. Like they brought in these special machines with bristles that kept it fluffy and light. This was not the situation of the shed row at this Charlestown barn. It was basically the dirt equivalent of a skating park. It went oh, up, it went down, it went sideways, there was holes, there was this, there was that, there was the other. So every lap around this barn, walking this horse I've just met, I'm having to avoid this, step this, move this, lengthen, shorten, you know, move. And he knows the drill. And the thing that was really cool from moment one was that he listened to me. When I slowed down, he slowed down. When I went fast, he went fast. When I stopped, he stopped and looked for a carrot and was generally just very lovable. I knew I was buying that horse. <laughs> so I bought that horse. And decided I really had to have him right away and came home, grabbed my truck and trailer, came down and got caught in Charlestown, West Virginia in an ice storm and had to stay an extra day and miss a day of work (laughs) and bought the horse, brought him home. And I think I got him home, waited two hours, tacked him up and walked him around the neighborhood on the roads. (laughs) And he was that good from day one and he was six years old he'd had 30 something starts he knew life and he was just game for all of it and that was march we took him to the makeover in october well actually i should point out i volunteered to take because the makeover people were really smart about oh we're gonna do a demo at the rolex kentucky three-day event it was still called rolex then and you know, we're going to show off what these horses will do. And I said, I want to go. They said, you're in Pennsylvania. I said, I understand. If I get my horse there, can I be in the demonstrations? And they said, well, yeah, if you pay for your shipping, I'm like, done. I'm going. (laughs) They're like, oh, okay. So March 1st, I bought him. Rolex is the last weekend of April. I rode him most days, probably five days a week. And took him to Rolex, shipped him down to Kentucky, and rode him around at the horse park in the biggest crowds he'll ever see in his life. And he was foot perfect every step of the way. Then we went to New Vocations, had like a public open house lesson-y thing. And we did that too. He was perfect. Took him back to the horse park, did more demonstrations in the pouring, pouring down rain. He was perfect. Loved him, pet him. Chucked him on the trailer, sent him back to Pennsylvania, said, I think I'm in good shape. Yeah. And that must took him to the makeover. Confidence the he makeover. was just, that <laughs> horse was that good. And we took him to the makeover in the field hunter division because I have, as much as I've galloped a lot, I've also done a lot of fox hunting jobs, making up green fox hunters. So I trained him up, hunted him with a hunt, kept him back of the field, every hunt, every hunt, every hunt. And he was just 
as class as they come and got to the makeover and won it by a mile. And, you know, it's not very often that you go to buy a horse to compete and just want something good. I didn't buy it to win, but it all worked out to win because we did everything right. And there's so many things that have to work out in your favor for you to even get there, much less win, you know? Oh, God, and I missed the month of June and July because he messed up his feet. He ripped yeah. off two shoes in a row, took all his hoof off, and it was like, <laughs> we're done. And then we came back out of it and was like, okay, good, we're good. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so Gin Joint probably competing, winning the makeover, had just that was, that was a huge high. And actually yeah. that was – Amazing because it showed me what could be possible with other horses in other disciplines and other things. Yeah. So he's probably top of the heap. I mean, I don't think you can really beat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's pretty amazing. Because he won a lot all through the year. I mean, he evented, he did jumpers, he did hunters, he did everything. And he just would go out, bring home a ribbon. Go yeah. out, bring home a ribbon. Yeah. He just was a really class horse. And he's a gray horse and he's actually with a friend of mine who owns his brother because two years later, this is life. He was doing this little funny stumbly thing. And we found out that he had cervical arthritis in his neck. And if we didn't do a life that included doing three, six jumpers, it stopped. And they said, Oh, you can inject his neck. And I said, at what point does the horse's body telling me it can't do something mean that I overrule it for my own glory? Yeah. No. So he went to my friend and he has a low level life and he's happy. Yeah. They don't know. And that gives me the greatest satisfaction out there. I think there is kind of a feeling that people get that the horse will know it's missing out on something or, you know, but they're, they're happy. They're missing out on grass. That's all they worry about. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not a lawnmower today. Damn it. Yeah. No, it's us that, you know, we, we put that kind of emotion on them. But Right. Um, and you put that pressure on ourselves to feel like you should be doing X, Y, and Z when I think at heart we're all just these girls that want to spend time around horses no, in no matter what yeah. capacity that is, you know. So what characteristics do you look for when you are buying an off-track thoroughbred? Or say you find one that you like that you're going to recommend to a friend that's looking. What sort of process do you have to and just kind of oh man that process is is dumb luck on top of dumb luck on top of oh look i just ran into something and oh look there it is no i I, think we're all kind of the same in the fact that we probably look at more horses individually in our free time without discussing it with anybody else than probably a lot of other people where we are just constantly we're not even shopping like we're just we're not even shopping just like oh can i put up a a new showcase of horses let me go through every single one of these and look at them and dissect them and think about them and you know it's i think that that's how's it bred Ooh, what you know it's yeah and then if i really really like it i'll send it to emily (laughs) and then maybe it'll go in the virtual stable i don't know right but right (laughs) oh my god my virtual stable is full we're gonna have a whole separate episode just about the virtual stable okay good and equibase Um, (laughs) okay process of how let me be very clear to anybody listening to this my process is not something that defines well because I break my own rule. The horse I own now is inbred to Stormcat. Oh. <laughs> Emily Kokobinski knows that I had sworn off Stormcat 
so hard and so fast that this shouldn't be words coming out of my mouth right now. I, now, I, I would also point out... I'm not really a fan, so I get you. I, get I, you I would also point out that this is my one and only Stormcat, and it's unrideable and costing me money. So <laughs> I might stick back to my guns on this one. But no, in all seriousness, riding at the track taught me that individuals matter more than trends. So what I mean by that is that as much as I love the thought of every cuisine, I'm very picky. I don't make a ton of money and I pay for my horses myself and it has to fit into the monthly budget as well as into the expense budget. So when things go wrong, we're tripping up, you know, other horses or my dogs being able to have vet procedures that they need. It matters. It matters to get it right. The biggest thing I like is the big angled shoulders because I feel like when a horse has a big shoulder, the front legs can move better. The hind legs come through better. The top line is softer because it all moves effectively. Mm-hmm. And you don't often see a huge shoulder and a straight up and down hind end. These things don't often go together. The straight up and down hind end kids is bad. You want to have some move to it. Jin, the one I just described, is when you look at his confirmation, he's actually sickle hocked, which is of interest in confirmation flaw because forever and ever and ever they said it was bad. But when you talk about jumping a horse that is sickle hocked, it actually helps them plant further underneath themselves and jump higher and easier. So it actually takes away some of the effort of a jump. Now, this comes along with the added risk of DSLD. So you have to watch the ligaments in the hind end and you want to make sure that you do your homework, that you're not buying a horse that has existing problems. But confirmation-wise, I like the big shoulder. Breeding-wise, yes, I love Cozy. And I take it back, Jin was sired by Macho Uno. He was out of a Cozine mare. I got that backward. So we'll have to fix that somehow. But, but as much as I like a line or a sire... I think all of us have seen examples of that sire or examples of a damn sire that don't meet what we like. So I look more at the individual. That's how I ended up with a horse that's inbred to Stormcat. But I think that wherever you have a chance to, which most people have a chance to, buying off the internet, you don't. But I don't tend to buy off the internet very much where you can I would spend time with the horse and touch it and hold it and lead it yourself. There's a connection there that happens and it can be really great. Like Jen and I walking around the shed row, it can be really like nothing really happens, which can happen a lot or it can be bad. Like the horse just immediately gets rank with you and you can't control it. You can't steer it. You can't turn it. You don't want to start the relationship with the last example. You want to have somewhere to start from. So I believe very much in spending time with the individual and going from there. So big shoulder, see if the horse floats your boat, spend some time with it, progress to the pre-purchase level examination stuff that you do. 
whether it's a vet, a trainer, another person that's familiar with thoroughbreds. I know how to read performance charts, so I know to look for gaps for possibility of injuries. I also know how to explain to people that I'm not asking about the horse's history as a means of judging them or judging the horse or running away and not going to buy it, but rather understanding what I'm working with so that I can make that determination if the past on this animal will mesh with the future I have planned. I don't care about some of the stuff. Some of these things that people are throwing away horses for, I laugh. I will buy that horse in 10 seconds. And if I had a 20 stall barn, my husband would divorce me, but I'd have a lot more horses (laughs) and they'd be very nice. (laughs) But yeah, it's an individual thing, but I would say that the big shoulder, a good mind and, you know, decent background, decent training, being able to tell when a horse has been treated right is very easy when you spend time with them. When they've been treated wrong, you can see it. Yeah. And I feel like, there's that intangible of actually going to the track and meeting the horse in person and having that feeling of like, I better put this horse on my trailer before somebody else shows up. Yeah. Oh, Jen was like that. I was, <laughs> I was terrified. I was freaking out. I couldn't get my trailer down there fast enough in a driving <laughs> rainstorm that turned into sleet because I was sure the internet would find out that he existed. And he was never listed anywhere. I saw him in a race and I liked his pedigree. Right. Right. Yeah. There is always that intangible for sure. So with all of the things that you just said, what would you say are some of the most important things for our listeners to know when restarting an off the track thoroughbred and the way that they're different than regular riding horses? I would say go slow. Yeah. I would say that, you know, One of the things that I am a proponent of across all parts of life is owning what you know and working with it. I think you grow more when you take accountability. I think it's a growth moment to say, I want to do this, but I don't know how. Can Mm -hmm. you help me? They're very good at highlighting what you don't know. Yes, they are very good at highlighting what you don't know. They are very good at it, but they're also like, They reflect back to you what you need to see. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make sense to go, oh, that horse is a jerk. Nope. The horse is telling you something. Right. He's confused. He doesn't understand. Can you separate an ego that you don't have with a horse because it's a horse? It's not a person. You know, if the horse is telling you you need something, then it's your job to hear it, hold on to it, process it, and find a way forward that acknowledges that your dogs, your cats, your spouses, your partners, your coworkers, they all work this way. Yeah. You have to do it the same with a horse. And it's more important because this is an animal that you're going to put your life in trust with. Swinging onto the back of a horse is not the safest activity in the world. If you need a safer pastime, look at pickleball. If you want to enjoy this life, it is important to acknowledge that there's risk and that you need to own the responsibility to be the best partner. I'd say that very seriously because this is a life and death sport. 
Yeah, we talked a little bit about this in uh, previous episodes, but we like to say that when you start interacting with a thoroughbred, it's like learning a new language. Even if you've understood and ridden horses your entire life, riding an off-track thoroughbred, is it's like a different dialect completely. And Mm -hmm. how true do you feel like that is, like coming from, you know, say you're talking to somebody who's never ridden an off-track thoroughbred. You say, well, you have a lot of horse experience, but not necessarily... The, the language to speak to this particular horse. I, I would agree in the sense that the thoroughbred brain and, and every horse is a little bit different. I have a thoroughbred that's like a warm blood and a warm blood that's like a thoroughbred. You know, you have to process what they're saying as much as them processing what you're saying. And there's usually a lot more understand of command and response in a thoroughbred because they've done more. They've seen more from a younger age. They've been exposed to more. You cannot imagine what it's like for some of these horses that have run at fairs. There's Ferris wheels, there's amusement rides. You know, I took Jin to Devon to compete in the hunt teams class and we walked around the Ferris wheel and he looked at it and went, Oh yeah. And I have been on a warm blood that went by the Ferris wheel and went, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Send me also, to also the, the, Ferris, the Ferris wheel is literally next to the ring, too. It's not yeah, like it's, it's off in the distance. It's We're not, talking about like, a, a tiny little away. property. It's like 50 feet. If it's that. so yeah. close. Yeah. As a crow flies. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it just a thoroughbred has seen more, done more. And now that we're getting and I should qualify this. We're getting more purpose-bred for sport thoroughbreds. They fall into a different language or maybe a different dialect because they have not seen all the things. They have not raced as two-year-olds. They have not seen circuits of summer racing is here, winter racing is here, I get turned out for part of the year, what have you. You know, when you have a horse in a consistent program, you want to see that they've seen diversity. Thoroughbreds have seen diversity and they come to the virtual equestrian poker table going, you did not even see what happened at Laurel last week. You, <laughs> quarter horse, that, that, that 15 second thing, what's that about? Really? Come on. You, warm blood, stop chasing your tail. Come over here. You, Appaloosa, what eye are you looking at me with? But no, seriously, come on. I gotta play poker, but look, I gotta tell you stories about what I saw this week. There was this crazy van, and then there was a normal van, and there was this mare. Let me tell you about this mare. You know, that's the thoroughbred. Yeah. The thoroughbred is the one going, da, 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 da. and the others yeah. are just different. And there's yes. nothing wrong with different. Yes. Period. I'm always, I'm also, as we all know, a lifelong OTTB enthusiast, but yep. I decided to breed my mare during COVID and have a warm blood cross baby who I just dropped off at to go to, I don't know if you call it kindergarten or it is high school. <laughs> but you know she's been on the farm she was bred at we have taken her to a couple of shows but this farm mm-hmm. happens to be in Amish country and they mm-hmm. have farm animals like pigs and donkeys and there's carts going down the road so I think she's mm-hmm. having quite an eye-opening experience <laughs> which yep. is very different than not that a thoroughbred necessarily would have seen Amish buggies going down the street, but sometimes they have a little bit of a larger world that they've experienced. (laughs) I think that's where the different language comes from is that they've, 
in their time frame of work in the timelines that are the accepted timelines in thoroughbred racing as we know it as of 24, um, they've seen a lot at a very young age. And I think it helps condition them to accept more change than horses that have been in a more sheltered or a longer trained up to ridden horse environment. My warm bloods weren't anywhere near as experienced at the same age, but by the time I got them, they were more experienced, but definitely the thoroughbred mind processes quickly. Yeah. And that actually can go against you too, because they can overreact and hit the flight function a little quicker than some like, you know, a really good laid back, well-trained cow horse, trail horse, you know, school horse, they can process things on their feet, not mm-hmm. quite in frozen mode, but in the, let me just sit here and take this in for a second. Right. <laughs> right. So, well, I think we've got one more question for you, then we're going to wrap it up. This has been an awesome conversation, but we'd like to know what is the best advice that you can give someone that is shopping for an off-track thoroughbred for the first time? Um, I'm going to say what I say to everyone and whether or not they believe me is another story. Take your time. You're never going to miss out on the horse you're meant to have. I like like that. that. Yeah. I've heard you say that many, many times. That's really (laughs) good. Well, I mean, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a relationship or success like I did with Jin or a failure like I did with this current lad. But you can learn something from everything. Yeah. It's important to remember that I'm sitting here, what I would say is a moderately successful horse person life. And every step to get to this day wasn't all success. There was a lot of failure mixed in, but the sum of the whole is a success. Yeah. And it's all those horses along the way that carve out that path. I feel like they all hold a special meaning, even if they're not the horse that you have for the rest of your life. You know? No, I mean, there's examples throughout my career of horses. I didn't get along with well, or had a lot of trouble with, or ended up, having more to them that I could handle process ride. You know, those are the moments where we learn, do you suck it up or you grab your bootstraps and go? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For so sure. All my thoroughbreds have given me an amazing gift of a great career. All my horses have not just the thoroughbreds, all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us today. We look forward to having you on another episode in the future. So start thinking about ideas. <laughs> I think we've brought up a couple today. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review on Apple podcasts. Feel free to reach out to us at OTTB on tap at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at OTTB underscore on underscore tap and join our Facebook group OTTB market. See you next time.